This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to challenging you to listen to the biblical Christ as He reveals Himself in Scripture. Revelation chapter 19 does speak to us about a final invasion against Satan's final ruthless dictator. Let's join Dave as he begins our study titled, The White Horseman, with some reminders of Vietnam, Korea, and Desert Storm. How does the repetition of the conflicts indicate that someone greater in the end needs to mount the invasion? I spent some time up in Michigan, and I had the privilege of being with a guy that's just a little bit older than me, and uh, he was sharing about how a lot of his classmates ended up in Vietnam, and it turned out that he was a Vietnam vet. He talked to me about driving convoys there in, in Vietnam and, and trying to give support to the soldiers that were there. And he was just sharing as a Vietnam vet the incredible passion that he felt when he went to the Wall of Remembrance in Washington. Those of you that uh, didn't fight in the Vietnam War, you know, you go to the wall and you're like me, you know, you look at all those names. And uh, certainly we appreciate the price that was paid. But my friend Don shared how when he went to the wall, he just completely broke down because he went to the wall and he started finding one friend after another that he had lost there in the war in Vietnam. I remember some of my other friends in, in the Korean War, a friend of mine named Colonel McGuckin. He flew in World War II and flew in the Battle of Midway and was able to have an incredible career as a fighter pilot in World War II. Unlike most fellows, he hadn't had enough. And so when the Korean War came along, he was a full bird colonel and made the switch over into jets. And one of his agonizing things that he would talk to me about was how he actually watched the Chinese communists mobilizing north of the parallel. And they were, he could see large numbers of Chinese troops getting together. And yet he felt helpless because they wouldn't let them bomb. The United Nations had a restriction. You couldn't bomb north of this certain parallel. And so as soon as they poured over the line, they became mixed up with the South Koreans and our troops. And there's no way that he could use the bombs in his airplane to help to support his troops. And some of his buddies there in the heart of Korea, in fact, a lot of fellows that were with my dad in West Point in a Bible study, a lot of guys were trapped on the mountains of Korea. It was almost a miracle that they were able to fight their way out. And we all know that Korea kind of ended up in this oozing stalemate. We all experienced desert storm. Uh, General Schwarzkopf, you know, just getting overwhelming power. And we all thrilled. Remember, it was right here on a Wednesday night at church while we're having the power team speak to us. Right here on Wednesday night, the war broke out. And I, I couldn't believe it. I could actually turn on the radio in the office and hear the warplanes over CNN flying over into to bomb Baghdad. And it was just like a surreal thing. And it was, it was like, hey, this, this couldn't be happening. Is this real? But it was real. And one of the things that I noticed as I talked to one soldier after another, after I talked to one soldier after another, they rejoiced with the freedom they've been able to defend. They rejoiced that they were able to express love for their country. The truth of the matter is, every soldier in this room that's fought for the different causes that have been represented and fought for freedom, we appreciate the freedom that we have. But the truth of the matter is that evil and wickedness and slavery goes right on. And so as you grow older, you can start to lose that idealism of youth and say, what's the use? We've been studying the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation faces reality more clearly 
than any other book that you'll ever read. It, it exposes what evil does. It exposes the heinousness of it. It exposes the power of it. And yet the book of Revelation we've been going through, we were introduced to the ultimate tyrant that Satan can produce. We're introduced to a Hitler-like individual that makes Hitler look like a Sunday school boy. And we've seen Antichrist ride forth during the tribulation period, and he's able to get control of the world government. He uses a false prophet, according to Revelation chapter 13. And this false prophet's able to go outside and gather large crowds and he, he just speaks the word and lightning bolts come out of heaven and, and he's able to wow the world with the power and the miracles that this, this false prophet of Antichrist is able to do. The book of Revelation tells us, just like the book of Daniel, that there's going to be a temple that's rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. And somehow the false prophet's going to erect an image to the Antichrist and it's going to be given like incredible powers. It's going to be like a, a great big robot that can speak and can give predictions and all kinds of signs and wonders are going to be done. And all the world's going to say, wow, you know, who in the world can fight the beast and who is powerful to stand against it? We've also learned in the book of Revelation there's 144,000 kind of point men for God. Precious Jewish believers that after the rapture takes place, as the tribulation begins to unfold, these former unbelieving Jews come to understand that Yeshua, Jesus, is their Messiah. And just like the Apostle Paul was mightily saved, these 144,000 begin to go out and they begin to reach hundreds of thousands of people during the tribulation period and the world begins to divide between those who believe in Jesus and those who reject him. And this tremendous warfare is going on and Antichrist even cuts off the heads of thousands of these precious believers and many of them give their life in martyrdom. That's the setting of Revelation chapter 19. In order to feel Revelation chapter 19, you have to feel what it's like to face the brunt and the point of Antichrist's sword. You have to feel what it's like to be persecuted. And as American believers, it's really hard for us to enter into, into that because a lot of our persecution is just word of mouth and people teasing us and people mocking us. For example, when I was speaking up in Michigan on the book of Revelation, suddenly in the back after one of the meetings, Priscilla came forward. She said, do you mind if I say something to the group? And Priscilla got before a group of believers just like you. And she started describing how her people were being attacked. Several have been slaughtered. They had been beheaded. Priscilla went on and shared how many of the Chinese Indonesians are believers like yourselves. They've come to know Christ as their Savior. And because they've come to know Christ, they become industrious and they become prosperous. And, and they've worked really hard. And, and, and the people are jealous. And all those horrible things of inner races and conflict and social jealousy and all that is raising up. And she talked about churches that were being burned down. So what I want to share with you is that as we talked, she came to me at the end of the week. She said, Dave, boy, my people need to hear the message of the book of Revelation. We need to hear the message of the book of Revelation. We need to understand that there's a great conflict. First John tells us that the spirit of Antichrist has already gone out into all the world. You need to decide which side of the line that you're going to be on. Are you going to be on the white horseman side, the great conquering Christ? Or are you going to side on just this present world system? Just the Antichrist and his false prophet. And he can do powers and miracles and do incredible things. But unless you know this book, you'll be deceived by him. 
So as we open up to Revelation chapter 19 and renew where we were the last time we studied the book of Revelation together, that's the background that we're looking at in Revelation 19 as the white horseman rides forth. The ultimate allegiance of your life, the ultimate authority of your life needs to be this, this rider in a white horse whose name is Faithful and True. I talked about the last time that this is the rider who you can always depend upon. You can always trust him. He will never, never let you down. This is the writer who is true. You're going to find one split second into eternity that all that we've taught you about Jesus from this holy word is true. It's going to conform to reality. And every one of us are living on a knife edge and we need to know what is true. And this white horseman Jesus is the one who's going to be proven to be true to all the reality. With justice, he judges and makes war. And I talked to you about the fact how in our war situations and in our criminal justice situations, time and time again, we, we throw up our hands in exasperation and says, how can we really know what's true? How can we know what's really just? And that's why it's so important to give your, your ultimate allegiance to Jesus. I am just so thankful. I am so thankful one day my precious Savior is going to expose everything. And it's going to be totally right. And, and all the injustice that's ever been done, all the injustice is going to be healed. It's going to be, it's going to be made right. That's what the rider and the white horse represents. It says his eyes are like a blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. And that means that he has the right to rule. The Antichrist only had a few diadems. But Jesus has many. And what John is telling this beleaguered group of believers, huddled there by the shores of, 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 in modern day Turkey, by the shores of the Black Sea, the Apostle John is telling them, man, it might look like the Roman Emperor Diocletian. It might look like he has all the diadems. He has all the crowns of authority. It might look like when he rides his white horse in Rome and celebrates the great victory of the Roman legions, it might look like he has won. And you might look like it's a little group of believers that are trusting in, in the ultimate white horseman, trusting in Jesus. But John the Apostle is saying, I want you to listen to me. You're going to win. Here we are 2,000 years later in the 21st century. Most of you haven't even given a thought to Diocletian. He is just a dusty old Roman relic. What I've been challenged about as I read this book, if my first century brothers and sisters facing that kind of opposition with such little physically to be able to show for what Jesus could do, if they could make a commitment to him, then how much more should we make a commitment to him today in the 21st century? That's what this white horseman means. It says he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. You know, when, when Jesus came the first time, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The first time that the Word of God came, the Word of God, the revelation of God, the one that could explain to us what God was like, the one that could show us what God was like, the first time he came, he came to shed his own blood. As we look at this incredible holy picture of Jesus, the great white horseman, remember we're looking like at holy political cartoons. Remember we're signifying these messages. It's like we're looking at this incredible visual image. And we have to ask ourselves, what does this represent? And the white horse represents a great conquering general. We have to ask ourselves, what does this blood on his garment mean? 
Lots of debate about that. Some hold that it stands for his own blood that was shed. For us that are under the blood of Jesus, if you have come to know Christ as your Savior, then the blood of Jesus is delivering to you. It is salvation to you. A dear lady came up to me on Friday night just before I left Michigan, and she started to cry. She said, you know, all of my life, I'm a grandmother and I'm raising my granddaughters, and I've never been able to explain to them why Jesus died such an agonizing death. And the stuff in the Bible about the blood of Jesus, God's son, can cleanse us from all sin. I never understood why in the world, in fact, we would talk back and forth together. Why did God the Father allow such a horrible death to come to his son? And she said, this week I understood that Jesus took my punishment. He took the penalty that my sin deserved. And that when Jesus shed his blood in such an agonizing death, that the reason he did it is because he took the penalty that I deserved. Now, I've known that from the time I was a little kid. And most of you, a lot of you have known that from the time you were small. And some of you that have learned it later in life know how precious it is for it to just hit you like an illuminating light that Jesus gave his life for you. And that's why in a communion service, when we drink the cup, we, we just remember the Lord shedding his blood for us. I trust that every single one of you understand the preciousness of the blood of Jesus. And I pray that that blood is precious for you. It's what takes evil, the evil of your heart, the evil that is being manifested in Indonesia, the evil that can break forth at any time that's present in our own heart as we rebel against God. It's the blood of Jesus that takes that evil seriously. And is able to cleanse it and to wash it whiter than snow. But I want you to know that probably in Revelation 19, the blood that's on Jesus' garment is not his own blood. Because the picture in Revelation 19 is not of the first coming of the Savior when he came to die to sacrifice for our sins. The picture in Revelation 19 is the next time that Jesus comes to plant his feet here on planet Earth. At the beginning of the tribulation period, as I taught you earlier in the book, I believe Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven and takes the bride of Christ to be with him. He doesn't come all the way to planet Earth. So he comes to retrieve his bride and to rescue them and to take care of them. That precious group combined of both Jews and Gentiles that have been called to a relationship with him and make the church the household of God. But as we move towards the close of the seven years, Revelation 19 is picturing the second coming of Jesus. And Jesus comes this time not to shed his blood, but this time the blood is the blood of his enemies. And the picture here, what it's picturing here, is that all those who shake their fist against Jesus, all those that curse him, all those that laugh at him, all those that reject him, I got news for you. He has the power to deal with them. When the English Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, went to Berlin to meet with Hitler and had the famous Peace in Our Time speech, when Chamberlain left, Hitler laughed at Chamberlain. He laughed at the Brits. He laughed at their namby-pambiness. He laughed at their, their weakness. Why was Hitler laughing? Because he thought, he thought his Nazi panzer units could just push the English right into the English Channel. And he laughed at them. It was like he was a liar. He was immoral. 
He was already concocting his mind. In fact, he'd already put into place the murder of one Jewish person after another. And wickedness in the person of Hitler just laughed at all the forces that would oppose him. And that's what a lot of sinners do today. The kids go out into school, and as you're working a job in a secular environment, and and the language that was said, and the, the jokes that were spoken of, the reality of the matter is we can forget. We don't live in friendly territory. The Lord doesn't mean for us to live in friendly territory. Right now, we live in a world where Satan has a lot of authority. He has a lot of control. And as a father of Christ, sometimes you can feel like, man, I don't have a chance. It's just little old me. How in the world can I ever expect to win such a great victory? And that's why this picture in Revelation is so powerful. It's so important. Because what it pictures is that Jesus one day is going to ride forth and come back to planet Earth. And I got news for you. My Savior's hesitation now to deal with sin. My Savior's hesitation now not to strike someone down that rebels against him. My Savior's hesitation now is just the expression of his merciful love and his tenderness, not willing that any should perish, but he wants to give time for people's hearts to turn around. But don't you ever mistake your Savior's gentleness for a lack of power. What Revelation does is correct the picture that Satan tries to tell us, that our Savior can't handle it. I talk to young people sometimes that will tell me, man, I, I worship the devil. I say, why do you worship the devil? They tell me, because he has power. Man, he can throw tables around rooms, and he can make Ouija boards do really weird things. And, and man, some of my friends that worship him, man they, can, man, they can do really cool, really super powerful things. That's a really dumb reason to follow Satan. Satan's in the little leagues when it comes to power. The only reason it looks like he has such great power is because our Savior right now is gentle and merciful, riding on a donkey, the, you know, riding into Jerusalem, coming meek and lowly. But Revelation gives us another picture and says that that gentleness and that tenderness should never be mistaken. If you're on the other side, I got news for you. Patton's army is just powder puff compared to the army of this great rider. MacArthur's armies landing on one beach after another in World War II is just small potatoes. In fact, this conquering general, it says here that he just speaks where, look what happens. It says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What's being pictured here, the, this incredible graphic image. It's like we have this white horseman, this great conquering general. He has a name, Faithful, True, the Word of God, the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the ultimate ruler in the, in the universe, and it pictures him in the ancient world. They would take the grapes at harvest time and put them up in a big vat, and it was kind of like a, a, a stone-flattened area that had sea, uh, kind of like funnels that the grape juice could go through, and the... The, the, those involved in the harvest would get up on these great big vats and they'd walk in the vats and little kids used to love to do that they would trod the grapes they'd put just hundreds of grapes up there and they'd walk in and the juice would go down through the filtration system and come down at the bottom purified of all the pulp 
But you can imagine what those kids looked like after tromping around in just several tons of grapes. That's the image that's used here, only this time it's an unbelievable image. It pictures God, Jesus Christ, treading out on a wine press against his enemies. And he is crushing his enemies. And that's why his robe is stained with blood, because it's the blood of his enemies. And he is trotting them down. He is conquering them. It says in another very powerful imagery, it says in chapter 19, verse 17, we studied earlier about the banquet of the marriage supper of the Lamb. But there's another banquet in the book of Revelation. I want every one of you to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you know Christ as your Savior, then you're already the honored, not just an honored guest, you're the focus of attention. You're the bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians. Those that are saved during the tribulation period and those that are saved during the Old Testament period, those that are saved during the Old Testament period by looking forward to the coming Messiah, looking forward to the gift of the Messiah and his sacrificial death, according to Isaiah 53, all of those people from the Old Testament, Daniel, Abraham, and then also those that are saved during the tribulation period, they're all invited as guests to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're really just one marvelous people of God because the book closes with the, with the foundations being the 12 apostles of the New Testament church. But the gates, what initiated this whole thing, the doorway into heaven was the precious 12 tribes of Israel that produced the, the promised Messiah. So Revelation talks to us as, about being a united people of God. So that's one of the suppers. In fact, it's, it's kind of an incredible, joyous time. One day, if you know Christ is your Savior, it's going to be party time heaven. It's going to be the greatest celebration, the greatest food, the greatest fellowship, the greatest fun that you've ever had. But there's another feast in the book of Revelation, and it's where the angel invites all the birds to come. And it's an incredibly powerful, ugly picture. You see, when there's been a great battle, like the Battle of Gettysburg, when the Battle of Gettysburg was over and the thousands of Yankees and thousands of rebels were lying dead on the battlefield, the horror of that battlefield is that the birds, the vultures, gather to that battlefield. It's an ugly part of a battle that they never, they never show you in a film that's glorifying war. But that's the imagery that's used here. It says, come, and the angel standing in the sun cried with a loud voice, flying in midair, and he said, come, gather to the great supper of God so you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, horses, their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Who are these people that are going to be destroyed in this great battle, the battle of Armageddon? Who are these people that the birds are going to come and eat their flesh? Look at the next verse. Then I saw the beast. That's the Antichrist. And the king of the earth and their armies were gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. So what we have here, it mentioned earlier at the end of the sixth bold judgment, that God poured out and caused all the nations to gather together. And Antichrist and the false prophet, now with all the nations of the world, I believe it's going to be centered into a great world conflict, centered in the Holy Land, as it mentioned that the blood will flow uh, to 1600 stadia, which is about the distance of the land of, of Israel today. This incredible battle. And so it, it's like we're right at this big climax. The armies are marching, the bugles are playing, the, everything's rolling. If it's modern warfare, the, the planes are flying, the tanks are there. 
And you expect to have some great conflict, but look what it says. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, verse 20, the one who had performed the miracles, the signs in his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That's the lake of fire. The rest of them were killed with a sword and that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. What a gruesome picture. You say, Dave, I don't believe it. I mean, I believe in a nice, warm, cuddly Savior. And I believe in a Jesus who is gentle and kind. And I want you to know I believe in a Jesus who is gentle and kind and loving. But I also live in a world where there's such a thing as evil. There's such a thing as people that will put their fist right in the face of God and they will curse him. And they will say, I'm the master of my fate. I'm going to control my own soul. As I look at this battlefield, I find myself saying, God, how could you ever do that? How could you ever destroy people like that? My father's answer to me is that he's totally just. He knows what's involved in every one of your hearts. And one thing I want you to get really clear in your heart We live in a society that thinks you can pretend that there isn't any God. We live in a society that thinks that you can mock the Son of God, that thinks you can reject Him, that you can turn away from Him. We live in a world where a lot of preachers that preach along the themes that I'm preaching today yell and scream and do all kinds of crazy things, and they become the butt of comedians' jokes. And often their stuff is all turned around and mixed up. So it causes the whole idea of a final reckoning of the fact that there really is an ultimate being who knows everything about us. And if deep in our souls we choose to be prideful and hard and rebellious and we let wickedness well up within us, men and women that that commit incest with their kids, you all have a horror of that. And you all have righteous indignation. Something should be done about that. If one of you lost your little girl and he was, she was raped and then beat up and then murdered and stripped and left out in a, in a field somewhere, then suddenly you'd find deep in your human heart, there's got to be justice here. There's got to be payment here. Well, if you as a human being in the midst of our heart that's not totally pure, not totally righteous, how do you think the righteous, holy heart of God feels? when people rebel against him. That's what this chapter is about. It's about Jesus coming with perfect, fiery righteousness, knowing every possibility, every choice that someone would have made, knowing the choice that they made. And all Revelation is telling us is that those that chose, the picture here is that those that chose to disobey the truth were the ones that faced the brunt of Jesus' anger and his wrath. It's not a flippant wrath. It's not an uh, irrational wrath. It is the righteous, holy, just punishment against those who rebel. There's a passage over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that takes a lot of the symbolism away and just tells us straight up, instead of giving us this graphic image, it talks to us about the same event in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want you to turn there as we close our time together and discussing Jesus' coming as a white horse and The Apostle Paul's talking about this Antichrist. And it says, don't let anyone deceive you in verse 3. For that day will not come until the rebellion or the falling away occurs. And the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed. 
the man that's doomed to destruction. I want you to know that God's in control. He already knows that Antichrist will end in destruction. What's Antichrist going to do? Well, we've learned in the book of Revelation. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. When human beings proclaim themselves to be God, they have taken that stance of absolute animosity towards God. Don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you about these things, and now you know what is holding them back. And I believe that it's you, the church of Jesus Christ, and the presence of your Holy Spirit, especially the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, that's strong enough to hold back the spirit of Antichrist today, so that he may be revealed at the proper time, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to hold it back till he is taken out of the way. I believe that's when the rapture takes place. The restraining influence of the church and the power of the Holy Spirit restraining through the church is what's strong enough now to ameliorate society and to protect against the spirit of Antichrist. And that's a sacred role that we play right now and we need to take it very seriously. And we'll continue to do so until the rapture when we're snatched out of the way. Then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. There is a sword out of his mouth. He just speaks the word. And the one who threw stars into space, with the breath of his mouth, he seizes the Antichrist and throws him to the lake of fire, whom the Lord will destroy, overthrow with the breath of his mouth, and Antichrist will be destroyed by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accord with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Now notice this. These are the conditions. Some of your unbelieving friends are in this kind of condition right now, and we need to reach them with the gospel. If they hear the gospel and and turn away, then the destiny I've talked about is what it's awaiting them. Look what it says. It says they perish because they refuse to love the truth. How many of you have friends that you know? You try to present the gospel to them. You try to reach them with the gospel, and they hate it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They turn you off. They mock you. You see, they're not just resisting you. When you try to talk to one of your friends, one of your relatives, somebody that you meet, when you present the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit of God is actually speaking to their heart trying to reach them. If I talked to you, I wouldn't speak to you for five minutes if I didn't think that the one that really teaches, the one that really reaches your heart is the Holy Spirit. I've told you over and over again, I think it's very foolish from a human standpoint what we do. Open up, talk to you for 40 minutes from an old book, and yet I know with all my heart, and man, I've got a lot of proof after doing it for a long time. This book is powerful. This truth is powerful. And the Spirit of God talks to your friend's heart, and he talks to your heart. And if someone just says, no, I won't have anything to do with that, they harden their heart. It says they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. The Bible doesn't say that people are going to go to hell because, man, I really wanted to know Jesus. I really wanted to love him. I really wanted to hear all about him. I was just longing with all my heart to find God, and I ended up in hell. You know, there's going to be nobody in hell like that. It's a lie of Satan when you think people be in hell that really, really wanted to be in heaven. That's what this verse is saying. It says, who are those that are going to be perished? Those who refuse to love the truth 
and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. This is really a serious issue. Do you love the truth? Do you love studying God's word? As the truth comes into your life, do you just love building your families on it? Do you delight in it? In other words, do you look forward like the teenager? We just, man, what I look forward to is being at camp and hearing about God and being with my Christian friends and being around a lot of Christians. Man, I, I just love, and I'd really love to get excited about the preciousness of the gospel and reaching out to others. That's what I delight in. Or do you see it today and say, no, I don't really delight in this book at all. I delight in what I'm going to do with my unbelieving friends, people that don't know the Lord Jesus. What about you as adults? Who do you delight in? What do you delight in? You see, what you delight in, what you take pleasure in, reveals where your heart really, really is. You see, when we're in love with Jesus, we're in love with his word, we're in love with what his word's revealing to us, we're in love with his people, we get great joy, great pleasure, great delight in being with those people. But if you're part of the other team, you take delight in wickedness. You take delight in sin. You take delight in doing those things that put Christ on the cross. That's the big dividing line. When you genuinely receive Jesus into your heart, there's a new person created inside of you that doesn't delight in wickedness anymore. doesn't mean there's not a battle. I'm not talking about that there isn't a battle. But when you genuinely receive Christ in your heart, there is a new person created inside of you that genuinely does delight in Jesus, in God the Father, in the Spirit, in the things of God's Word. There's a drive inside of you. I do want to get to know His Word. And you delight in the things of God. If you don't have that today, I would challenge you. Because what we just read in 2 Thessalonians is that the day of salvation doesn't always keep going on and on. You see, as I talk to you now, I remember, you know, being in meetings when the Holy Spirit talked to my heart and would say, Dave, you ought to do this. You know, you ought to receive me. When I was a little five-year-old kid, I could hear that voice. And I said, yes. But you know, as I've worked with people over the years, I've had other people that I can remember when they'd sit in meetings just like I'm speaking to you now. And man, they were listening. Man, they could feel in their heart what that preacher's saying from God's word. It's really true. It's the gospel truth. But they hardened their heart. They said, no, I like my unbelieving friends too much. I've got, I love doing this and this and this and this. And I really delight in that. I, don't, I know Jesus wouldn't want me to do that. So I'm going to keep walking that way. And later on, sometime later on, then I'll turn around. And I want to tell you from the depths of my heart, don't take the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your heart lightly. And I would challenge you today, if you're sitting there going, Dave, I'm not sure which side I'm on. I'm not sure which team I'm playing on. I'm not sure I'm riding with the white horseman. I'm not sure I'm going to be one of those that's clothed in white, the righteousness of the Son of God, poured into my life as a gift of grace. I'm not sure I'm going to be riding on that team. Right now, I think I might be riding on the other team. Why don't you nail it down? Why don't you switch from the Antichrist side and say, I'm joining the great white horseman. Let's pray. Father, I want to ask you, Lord, that your spirit would move among us Right here in our own midst, it's possible that someone hasn't really known for sure that they've received the white horseman into their life. 
And I'd ask you, Lord, that today as you come quietly, not like the great conquering general against your enemies, but today you come as a precious Savior, the one that loved us so much that he gave his life to die for us. Are you sure you're on Christ's side? Are you sure you're riding with the great white horseman that you haven't, that you're not on the other team? If you're not sure, then why don't you just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I want to really level with you today. Go ahead and right there where you're sitting, say, Dear Lord Jesus, I want to level with you today. I admit to you that I often delight in wickedness. There's a part of me that my heart just, I like to do what's wrong. And I realize that I've struggled to try to beat some of those things in my own strength, and I just can't do it. And I just come before you and admit to you that I am a rebel, that I am rebellious and arrogant. But you admit that to the Lord? Just tell him, Lord, I admit to you that I'm a rebel, that I turn away from you, that I sin. But I've learned today, and maybe you've known it for a long time, but maybe you've never taken it deep in your heart. But I learned today that right now, Jesus is not coming as the conquering general that's going to destroy all of his enemies, but right now today, Jesus is coming as the Savior and friend. We you say, dear Lord Jesus, I want you to come and live inside of me. I accept that you paid the penalty for my sin. I receive you into my heart right now. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're not only going to come back, but I believe you rose again from the dead. And because you rose again from the dead, because you left the tomb behind, then you're alive right now. And I want you to give me a new spiritual life right now. I want you to create a new person inside of me right now. The scripture says that in a moment of time, that if you open your heart like that, that you move from depending upon yourself to depending totally upon Christ. Father, I thank you so much that we've been able to have this time this morning. I thank you for these precious new members of your family that have been born again. I thank you, Lord, that you are the power of God unto salvation. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would help us as we finish this book. We're going to go on and study about the millennial kingdom. Uh, the thousand years where you're going to show this planet what it can really be like when you rule and reign. And as we close this book with a new heaven and new earth, help us to, to really be able to close our study of Revelation excited about the power of Christ to meet all of our needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.